Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Now, back in 1995, I took a trip to Columbus, Ohio, and when I go to Columbus, I always take I-79 north, as you know, if you've gone there, and then you jump onto 70 going west. On this occasion in 1995, though, about an hour outside of Columbus, Ohio, I hit a detour, and I had to get off the highway. That had never happened before in all the years I was traveling on 70. It's the first time that happened. And the reason it happened was because of a sinkhole. The Ohio History Connection website explains it this way. On March 4th of 1995, a 12-foot sinkhole developed in the eastbound lanes of Interstate 70 in Guernsey County, Ohio. Three cars and one truck struck the sinkhole, but no serious injuries were reported. The Ohio Department of Transportation immediately closed the interstate. Now, in the case of the sinkhole, the reason it happened was because there was an abandoned mine, mine underneath the road that finally collapsed. And it took about four months for them to fortify that area and then open up the highway again. Most of the time when we talk about a sinkhole, what happens is there's a slow wearing away, usually caused by water underneath the surface of the ground. And so the surface could look very, very solid one moment, but then all of a sudden, after an amount of time where it's been washing away, suddenly there's this big gap there, a hole there, and eventually falls. The U.S. Geographical Survey puts it this way, sinkholes are dramatic because the land usually stays intact for a period of time until the underground space just gets too big. If there's not enough support for the land above the spaces, then a sudden collapse of the land surface can occur. And here's a picture of a sinkhole that developed in California. You notice that the the road went straight down. Of course, in West Virginia, we don't have uh, sinkholes. We have what are called potholes. I believe as a nation, though, um, I think there's an erosion taking place. I would call it a, a sinkhole developing related to the foundations of our faith. There are things that I grew up believing most of my life and our whole society, I think, believed these things were true based on what's taught in the pages of the Bible, but those things are being slowly eroded away. One truth after another is being eroded away, and things might look fine for the time being, but eventually things might collapse. Things related to what God is God really like, and what are people like, and what really does sin look like, and... You know, what is, is the Bible the word of God? Is there a judgment coming? What is marriage? What is sex about? All these foundational truths are taught in the pages of the Bible, but again, I think they're being eroded away as people get away from what's taught in the pages of the Bible. Now, why does this matter? Well, we have examples in the Bible of what happens when people get away from the Bible as God's truth or the authority by which we live. A good example is the book of Judges where we read time and time again, it says the people did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes because when you stray away from what God says is true, you stop listening to God's prophets, 
then you end up straying away. And in the case of Israel, after many warnings, because they rejected God and they rejected God's word, he eventually rejected them. And I just have this thing in the back of my mind that maybe at some point this is gonna happen to us if we continue on the track that we're on. Now, as Adam mentioned, we're beginning here a series today called Timeline. And this is gonna go throughout the summer and the, the timeline that we're covering is the Old Testament. Uh, basically, 4,000 years of biblical history starting with Genesis 1-3 and going to the end of Malachi. I believe that all of that happened 6,000 years ago, basically, when God, on day one of creation, said, let there be light. And that began this creation event that begins in Genesis 1-3. Now, in a minute, you'll see why I'm beginning with Genesis 1-3. But throughout this story, all summer long, this timeline, we're going to be looking at stories that you probably heard growing up in Sunday school, or this is an opportunity for you, if you didn't go to Sunday school, to catch up. What I want us to realize is that, is that these stories are all connected. All of them are part of God's bigger story, and so each week we're going to be focusing on a story, but we're going to be pointing to where this thing fits on the timeline. Today, though, I'm not going to be focusing as much on a story, although we are looking at the story of creation. I want to focus on the fact that the book of Genesis is a foundational book that doesn't just present to us the beginning of the universe as we know it, the world as we know it. It's just not, the, not the, just the foundation of that, but there are foundations throughout the book that apply to everything we believe. Most of the things that we believe, significant doctrines, things about life and nature and everything else, they come out of the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis answers questions like, how did we get here? And why are we here? And what, what is God like, really? I mean, what's he like? And what are people like? And what is sin? And how did it impact things? And how does it impact things today? And how do we get right with God? And why do we need a savior? And will there be judgment to come? And these, the foundation of these truths are all found back in the book of Genesis. And so we're gonna be looking at some key beliefs. And again, our timeline starts beginning in Genesis 1-3 with 6,000 years ago with that first day of creation when God said, let there be light. Now, you might be wondering, well, where do you get 6,000 years or where do you get the 4,000 years of Old Testament history? Well, it comes from a couple different places. One is if you take the genealogies of people, if you look at who begat whom, and how long they lived and the children they had and how long those children lived. And then you tie it together with what we know about historical dates related to the pharaohs and other things. You conclude that, well, there's about 4,000 years of biblical history recorded from Genesis 1-3 to the end of Malachi. Now, I tend to believe all of this is true, everything we're reading about in the book of Genesis, because I believe God told Moses about the beginning of all things. The truth of the matter is none of us were there. And regardless of what you believe about the beginning of all things in this universe, however you think it came about, whatever you believe requires faith. I'm resting firmly on what Moses wrote in the book of Genesis, and he's been attributed as the author, being the author to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five books of the Bible. And the reason I, I tend to believe it is because God told him these things. God was there at the beginning. 
And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but how do we know God told him? You know, are we taking that just by faith? No, there were about two million witnesses. They were, they were close to, I mean, people debate how many Israelites came out of Egypt. But there may have been as many as two million people standing around Mount Sinai when God came down on the mountain with fire. And God spoke to the people and they all heard the voice. Every single one of them heard it. And then they said to Moses, please, don't let God talk to us. Let, let God talk to you. And so God began to just speak to Moses and he went up on the mountain and God told him things. Things that we wouldn't know about except that they were revealed to Moses and the people of Moses' day came to understand those things were true. They weren't having the discussion, is this really true? Is this really the word of God? They knew it was true. And they lived through many of the things that are recorded in Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But again, this story of creation isn't just about the beginning point or the foundation of the world and the universe. It's about foundations of belief. And so my main takeaway today is this. I want to encourage us to hold to the foundations found in Genesis. My encouragement to you is don't let go of those foundations that are found in the book of Genesis. Now, I'm going to look at seven foundational truths, seven foundational doctrines. I'm going to cover five of them in more depth, and actually the first two the most. And then the last two, um, I'm only going to spend a minute on them, not much time at all. So if I'm at number five and it looks like our time is almost up, it actually is. So don't get concerned about it. But I want to look at seven foundational truths. The first one is this, that God created everything. That's the starting point. Reading Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, verse 3 is where we begin the seven days of creation. And this might surprise some of you, I suppose, but I believe those were literal days. When you get to day one where God said, let there be light, then at the end of that day, it says there was an evening and a morning the first day. And from the Jewish mindset, the day starts the night before. And so this was a way of specifying that this isn't an age, this is a day. God created light on that first day. And then he began to unfold some other things. What I want us to realize about this, though, is that there's room for some other perspectives that Christians can have related to even like the age of the earth, although Christians disagree about it. Some Christians say, well, the earth is only six, 7,000 years old, up to 10,000. But it's possible that there's a gap between verses two and three of Genesis one, or we don't know how long Genesis one, one, and two existed before you get to then, God said, let there be light. Things were formless and void. Darkness was on the face of the earth, and And everything was like that as the story unfolds. And then all of a sudden you get to verse three and it says, then God said, let there be light. And so it's possible that there was a significant amount of time before you get to verse three. But once you get to verse three, I think it's very significant that we take it literally for what it says. A.P. Rostow describes the creative story in this way. He says, the chapter is an accounting for the creation of the universe as man knows it, not the beginning of everything. There's some things that aren't recorded in Genesis 1. It doesn't mention, for example, when the angels were created. But once you get to Genesis 1, 
In verse 3, God said, let there be light. That to me is the starting of some the literal days of creation where God began to form things. Now, why does all this matter? Well, it's important to realize everything didn't just appear. Dr. Warren Wearsby writes about this opening statement. He says, no scientist or historian can improve upon in the beginning God. This simple statement refutes the atheist who says there's no God, the agnostic who claims we cannot know God, the polytheistic who worships many gods, the pantheist who says all nature is God, the materialist who claims that matter is eternal and not created, and the fatalist who teaches that there is no divine plan behind creation and history. See, the belief in a God impacts every other area of our lives. It's such a significant foundation of truth. Mortimer Adler, who was a co-editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, wrote, more consequences for thought and action follow from the affirmation or denial of God than from any other question that we could answer. And I agree with him. That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, because if you don't get that part right, there was a God who created things. See, if there's no God, there's no objective sense of right and wrong. Everyone's right and wrong is whatever they think it is. There's no transcendent purpose that we have. We just kind of became, you know? There's no righting of wrongs in the world. All the wrongs will never be made right if there is no God to, to judge things. If there's no God, I, I'm of the opinion we actually don't have hope for the future. We're just at the mercy of fate. But in the being God. And we learn some things about God immediately. Just looking at creation and looking at how he deals with people, we understand that he's, he's powerful. We understand he has knowledge and wisdom to put everything together. We see his creativity. We see his goodness even reflected in the beauty of creation. And we see his love and holiness. And of course it means then that God has authority over our lives. He can tell us what we should and shouldn't be doing because he's our creator and we in all things actually belong to him. But let's look at a second truth, the foundational truth we get from the book of Genesis, and that is the people were created in the image of God. Verses 26 and 28 uh, to Genesis 1, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They, man, or mankind, will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Only people, as I've mentioned many times before, only people have been created in the image of God. And I realize that this counters what is believed by most in our world today. Because most people in our world today say that we somehow evolved from this real low life form and eventually over millions and millions of years of time, suddenly humanity resulted. But when I read the creative story, I say, well, that's not what it says. And so now we're faced with a choice. Do I believe God created it all? We read in Genesis 2 that God actually created man from the dust of the earth. He actually bent down and got his hands dirty making Adam. Because Adam alone is created in the image of God, not the rest of the, the creatures. It's unique. Then God created Eve from the rib. Now I'm convinced God created all the animals to be unique families. 
That's what we read in Genesis 1.24. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, you know, according to their kinds. Creatures that crawl, they'll be like creatures that crawl. Wildlife of the earth, according to their kinds. Every kind according to its kind. Each was unique. But I want to focus mostly on people because our significance comes from understanding that we were created in the image of God. Now, what does it mean to be created in his image? Well, it doesn't mean that we have his divine attributes like omniscience or omnipotence or omnipresence. Those attributes we don't share with God. There are some people in our culture today that would say people are little gods. No, we're not. We were created to be like God, but we'll never be God. So what does it mean? Well, it means we share with our creator in things like morality and having a conscience and a sense of right and wrong and a certain self-awareness and, and things that relate to relationships with one another that we have that other animals don't have. A.P. Ross defines it this way. He said, being in God's image means that humans share, though imperfectly and finitely, in God's nature, that is, his communicable attributes. That word just means attributes that we have in common with him. Certain attributes we have in common with God, certain ones we don't. And then A.P. Ross lists them. Life is an example. We're alive. Personality. Truth. We have this sense of truth and wisdom love, holiness, justice. And because we have this, and because we were created in the image of God, Ross says, and so we have the capacity for spiritual fellowship, and that is the point. The people were created specifically so that we could have a relationship with our God. That's why we were created. I want to suggest here today that if you don't understand that that's why you were created and you do not properly connect with your creator, you'll never really understand what life's about. You'll never understand your purpose in life. I've used an illustration like this before, but I want to use it again here today. I suggest that you look around in this room at anything that you can see, anything. Maybe you can exclude people, although they fit what I'm about to say as well, but anything, look at anything. Can you look at a single thing that wasn't created with a purpose in mind? You know? Why is that thing shaped the way it is? What's meant to be a seat? And our, our job is to figure out what the purpose of the thing is, right? Now, let me give you an example here. My good friend Jason's going to walk out with something, and I don't know if you will recognize what this thing is, uh, if, if you'll be able to see it or not, what this is. Any guesses? Okay, it, it is a light bulb, okay? Now, if, if, um, if you found this 300 years ago, you'd have no clue what it is. You'd realize it's made out of glass and there's some metal down here and some plastic and you'd look at it and you'd say, I don't, I don't, I don't get it, what is this about? And it would sit on a shelf or something, maybe you'd think it's meant to be beautiful because some things are just created just for their beauty. But um, you wouldn't know what it is, but the only way that you'd make sense as if you could plug it in. And so my good friend Adam has served me in dropping a cord so that I could plug this in and turn it on. And suddenly, when it is plugged in to what it was designed for, suddenly you understand what its purpose is. And I'm suggesting here that that's exactly the same. 
We were created for a relationship with God. And so early on in the story of Adam and Eve, you find God actually walking with them in the garden. He didn't just create us and then leave. And then if you wonder about his commitment to humanity and his desire for relationship with humanity, consider that his son Jesus took on flesh and blood. And he didn't become an animal, he became a man. A boy, an infant, who grew up to become a man. And so it's a foundational truth. There's a God, he created people in his image. But a third truth, foundational belief we get here from the book of Genesis is that sin leads to death. Almost every religion on the planet, of course, is trying to address the question, where did evil come from? And what do we do with it? I can tell you that from the book of Genesis, sin is devastating. It was devastating what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And some people would like to say, well, God is the one who made evil because God created everything, right? So he created evil, and then they'll go one step further and say that means God is evil. No, no. God didn't create evil. God created people with the potential for evil. In other words, he created them so that they could say yes or no to him. And with that, if I could call it that risk, with creating people with the ability to either choose for him or against them, there was the potential for them to turn against God, which is what sin is, going contrary to what God says. Now, God could have created us to be robots. And it could have been just a computer program that he runs and we just go along the computer program. But this again reinforces my second point. It's about a relationship. He didn't want to impose his love on us. He didn't want to force us to love him back. Then it's not real love. So he gave us a choice. He gave them in a sense a test in Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. And you know the rest of the story. A Satan-possessed serpent is what I think we're reading about in Genesis 3 there. A serpent possessed by the devil tempted Adam and Eve and they ate and suddenly death came into the world. Now, they didn't die physically that day. They began to die physically that day. But what they did die that day is spiritually. And they did die eternally that day, which creates a problem for all of us because sin comes between us and a holy God. That's, that's the problem with sin. We were created a relationship with our creator. Sin came in and ruined everything. Everything is under the curse of sin. Everything. And there's now a gap between people and God, and we're now born with a sin nature, which is an inclination to sin. I never taught my kids to sin. They did it just quite naturally. You say to do something, they do the opposite. You challenge them about something, a lie comes out. Because we've got this sin nature, it comes between us and God. And it's ruined everything. All of creation is under this curse of sin. Which brings me to my next point, though. God has provided a way to save us, and this is also found in the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they were hiding from him. Of course, you can't hide from God, so God went looking for them, him, them, I'm sorry, and he took the initiative. And I love the fact he took the initiative to find them. He was gonna still pursue that relationship, but he informed them that because of sin, there are some consequences. He said to Adam these words in Genesis 3, 17, the ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. In other words, from now on, work will be work. 
Then he told Eve in Genesis 3.16, I'll intensify your labor pains. You'll bear children in anguish. Now it's going to be a pain to have kids. God went on to say, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Simply put, it just speaks about the fact that there's now going to be kind of conflict between the, the husband and the wife. But it's what Satan was told, what the serpent was told by God that begins to give me hope. And God's words to him are very cryptic. And some of you are familiar with these words in Genesis 3, 14, and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, and this is the the verse, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In other words, your descendants and hers. He, now it's a male pronoun, he will strike your head. You will strike his heel. Now, without going into details, it's simply talking about the fact that a descendant of Eve was gonna eventually come and deal the death blow to the devil going to stomp the devil, that serpent, on the head. And one day the devil will be cast into the pit of hell forever and ever. But there'd be a cost involved. See, the prophecy said that the snake would bite, bite the heel of the one stomping on it. It's a picture of the death of Jesus, a veiled reference to what he was going to do for us. And it's all the way back in the book of Genesis. And immediately, God began to unfold his, his plan for how he was going to save people of their sin in the form of a sacrificial system. And immediately after you have Adam and Eve, you've got their children in chapter 4 of Genesis, and they're sacrificing already, offering off sacrifices to God. Abel offered an animal and shed its blood. And you say, where did that come from and what's it about? Well... God set up the sacrificial system so that the one offering the perfect animal that never sinned and kills it will live in place of the the animal that died. We've sinned, but the animal dies so we can be forgiven. Of course, the animal is not what could save anyone. It's what it pointed to. It's pointing to Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when Jesus began. There he was. And we get right with God when we put our trust or confidence in him. And that's also found in Genesis. Abraham was 75 years old. And in Genesis 15, God appeared to him and said, you're going to have some descendants, which for Abraham, this was news. He was beyond the age of having children. His wife was unable to have children. He was 75 But we read in Genesis 15, 5 and 6, the Lord took him outside and said, look at the sky, count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. I've mentioned before that the word credited is an accounting term. It means to deposit to the account of. No one will get to heaven unless God declares them righteous. Unless God deposits to your account, your overdrafted checking account, perhaps, a deposit that alleviates the debt, solves the problem. Abraham believed God, and God credited him as being righteous on the basis of that faith. And that's the way it is for us as well, most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever makes Jesus Christ the object of their trust. 
See, the problem we all face is sin. The solution is Jesus because of who he was and what he came to do. The sinless one dying in our place. And the response God's looking for is for us to make Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the object of our trust. But let's look at another foundational belief we have in the book of Genesis, and that is that God is the one who designed marriage and family. And I mention this one because it's the foundation of our whole society. It's the setup of an entire society, how God designed things. After God formed Eve, God brought Eve to Adam, and he took one look at her, and he said, you're bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He realized, you're not like the other animals. You're different. And then we read in Genesis 2 and verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. I think this is the foundation for marriage for having children, having a family, and having a society. All of that is found here. And I realize this runs contrary to our culture today. I get it. In fact, I hope all of us recognize, if you attend here at Chestnut Ridge, that we're the kind of church that you can come regardless of where you are in the spiritual journey because I recognize we're all in the journey together. I'm not even standing up here saying I know all the answers to everything. I don't claim that everything I believe is even right. Some of the things I believe are, are probably wrong. And if you could prove it, I'd change my view, I suppose. We're all in a process of learning things, but the thing that makes the difference, and it's my point here today, is we get what we believe from somewhere. Jesus was asked a question about marriage and divorce. He's, he was asked the question specifically, is it okay to divorce for any and every reason? Which was a ridiculous question. What did Jesus do? We went back to Genesis. He said, well, don't, haven't you read your Bible? Go back to Genesis. In Genesis, or Matthew 19, 4 through 8, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting right out of Genesis 2, because Jesus believed it. And then verse six, so they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers to send her away? The man wanted to divorce his wife. He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. Jesus was saying when God designed marriage, it was supposed to be permanent. And things happen. That was the design between a man and a woman who'd come together and have children and a society would be formed on that. Let me briefly mention two other foundational truths. I'm not going into depth, partly because we're gonna touch on them in future weeks, but the next one is that God chose Israel to be his people. I think it's really important to understand as part of this whole timeline thing that Israel figures prominently from Genesis to Revelation. It's part of his story. And it all started with God calling a man named Abraham who would have children. You know, Jacob and Isaac and, or Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel and a nation would be formed. And it would be a nation from whom the Messiah would eventually come. And one day Jesus is gonna rule in Israel over this nation. One day there's gonna be a revival of the nation. And I realize Christians these days are kinda turning against Israel. I won't because I know the end of the story. I still think it's true. You can debate me about it, but I still think it's true what God said to Abraham, God will bless those who bless you and curse those who don't. 
uh, I, again, I just know, know the end of the story, and it starts there, and it ends in the book of Revelation. Finally, God will judge the world one day. In Genesis 6, uh, chapter 6 through 9, which I want to talk about next week, the story of uh, Noah's Ark, which, by the way, we're going to see next week is an encouraging story. But it's also a picture of the judgment to come, and I think it's there on purpose. Because Peter refers to it. He says, just like God did this before, he's going to do this again one day. And so even the concept of an eternal judgment is mentioned in the book of Genesis. So God created everything. And we were created in the image of God, and sin leads to death. It still does. The more sinful our lives, the more it leads toward that way of death. And God has provided a way to save us. He designed marriage in the family, and God chose Israel, and God will judge the world one day. My encouragement to you is to hold on to these foundations. And I know the society's turning against them. And you have to decide whether you agree with them as you read for yourselves, what you read in Genesis. And, and does this really say what I'm saying it says? And does, you know, is this the truth for today? For me, my mind goes back to, to a song though I learned in Sunday school. It's called the B-I-B-L-E. So childish, so simple. I learned it like 60 years ago. First time I heard it, I was probably one, almost two. The B-I-B-L-E, I, the, I can't even spell it. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. My challenge for you is to hold on to what Paul said in Romans 12 too, where he said, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I'd say according to God's word, so that you may discern what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. Another version of this puts it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Let's pray. Father, we do recognize that some of these foundational truths are being set aside for other things in our world today. I ask you, Lord, that you would give us a heart that wants to hear what you would have to say, heart that wants to study what your word has to say about things, that we would build our convictions on what you say and not what our world says, not what our society says, that we might go stronger in our faith and our ability to point people to the true Savior who died in our place and for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.